We're in the book of Zechariah, if we could, chapter 6, please. As we've been looking through the book of Zechariah, we have seen that God is dealing with the nation in their present condition, and that was having just been released from Babylon within a few years, and they were supposed to be back in the land building the temple. So God, through his servants, uh, uh, Zechariah, other uh, prophets of God, are speaking to the people of God about their present condition, but every time there's an eternal ramification to it. Present condition, this is what's going on, but in the future, something glorious will go on. And almost on every occasion, we see it has to do with the millennial kingdom and or the tribulation period, the great millennial kingdom, and uh, the eternal state is not dealt with. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, recognize that the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. There's no reference to what we know to be the body of Christ in the Old Testament. It's just simply not there. People try to add it in there in their theology. They try to make little things, but it's not there. It was a mystery, Paul said, that was just revealed by Paul, no one else. So the, Old Te- the New Testament as we know it, the New Testament church is not part of the Old Testament. That's why the book of Zechariah and other similar Old Testament books completely skip the church age and go right into the millennial kingdom. Why? Because the church age is just a parenthesis in Israel's history. The parenthesis will be removed, and then the, the Old Testament will continue again. Now, this is, is according to God's program and its progressive revelation that God gives through his people. And so we have seen through Zechariah is receiving word from the Lord concerning the nation of Israel, both present, their present condition, but the future ramifications when Messiah will come back will return to earth and will set up his millennial kingdom on the earth. The last um, vision we saw, part of the eight visions, the last of the seventh vision, was a woman in an ephod, that that is a a measuring instrument, flying across the sky. There was a, a woman inside of it, and she depicted evil. And God put a lid on her, remember, a lid of 75 to 100 pounds in this giant basket, maybe 55 It could hold anywhere from 10 to 50 gallons, depending on the size of the thing. But the woman was sitting in there, and God put a lid on top of it to seal her. And then two angelic-type beings, not necessarily angels, but angelic-type beings, came and picked up that uh, measuring instrument with the woman in it and brought her to Babylon. Why? Because that was going to be the place of total destruction. That will be the place where sin will be once and for all dealt with right there in Babylon when God destroys the great harlot in the book of the Revelation. And so we have the last of our visions that Zechariah receives, apparently all in one night, and he receives them. Again, they're picturesque. They're they're very uh, picturesque of God dealing with his people presently and in the future. And we have now, in chapter 6 and verse 1, four chariots. I want you to notice in chapter 6 and verse 1, and he turned and lifted mine, and I turned and lifted mine eyes and looked up, and behold, there came four chariots from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Now, very symbolically, these mountains of bronze represent Jerusalem. And the reason we know that is because God says the mountains of Jerusalem will be the only mountains left standing 
after the Great Tribulation period. It will be the highest place on the face of the earth. Mountains of bronze, they're permanent, they stand, they're fixed. And these four chariots come out from between those two mountains, even though the rest of the world will be leveled, and all the islands of the seas will be, will be submerged underwater. All that will be left is what we know probably to be the giant continents of the world. And God uh, gives us that very, very plainly in the book of the Revelation when you compare it with Isaiah and other prophecies concerning uh, the, the end times of what we know to be the millennial kingdom. So chariots come. Now when we look at chariots, it's kind of interesting. I want you to notice, first of all, what the chariots were. Verse uh, 2, before the first chariot were red horses, and before the second chariot, black horses, and before the third chariot, white horses, and before the fourth chariot, dappled horses or bay horses. So we have the, the, black, the red horse, the black horse, the white horse, and then this dappled horse or gray horse with some kind of spots on it. We would call it an Appaloosa, a Dalmatian type of horse. But they're pulling chariots. Now these chariots, I want us to see, represent God's, uh, God's work on the earth, his spirits. Pick it up in verse, uh, verse 4. Then I answered and said unto the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? What is this all about? Remember again, when you compare back to chapter 1, this probably was the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, giving information to this man, um, Zechariah. And the angel answered and said, These are the four spirits of heaven which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. So God has commissioned these chariots to head out into the earth. Now when we look at the chariots of God, it's very interesting to see that chariots, the chariots of God represent God's judgment. They represent God's judgment. And we'll see that in a moment. But what I'm interested in right now, they go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth, the, uh, verse 5. They are commissioned by God to go out into the earth. Nothing happens on planet earth that has not been commissioned by God. Nothing happens. God is sovereign over all things. Whenever there is these, uh, these horrific battles that take place, God is sovereign over all things. When Israel was invaded by foreign uh, lands, God was sovereign. God said, I'm going to bring them against you. I'm going to judge them, but I'm going to use them for judging you. So God is sovereign over all things, and God commissions these, uh, these chariots. The chariots, of course, are angelic beings headed out uh, to, to bring judgment upon the earth. And we're going to see that in a moment but I think it's fascinating. I want to see something together if we can. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 22. Now you're very familiar with this passage, but I want to begin with this. 1 Kings chapter 22 and carry on. Look with me please at verse 19. Verse 19. This is Micaiah reporting to Ahab and to uh, uh, Jehoshaphat. I think it's Jehoshaphat. Well anyway, let's continue on. Verse 18 of 1 Kings 22. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. This is Micaiah speaking. 
He said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left hand. Now, who are the host of heaven? They're angels, because at this point, there are no redeemed people with him. There are no Old Testament saints with him. Remember, they did not ascend unto glory un, uh, until the Lord Jesus uh, was raised from the dead and then ascended up to glory, and he brought the Old Testament saints with him. So these are angelic beings standing before the Lord on his right hand and on his left hand. And what are they doing? Well, notice, please, they're going to do his will. Verse 20, And the Lord said unto, uh, and the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he might go up to Ramoth Gilead? Um, and one said on this manner, and another said on this. So these are the angels conversing with God that they're going to persuade Ahab to go to Ramoth Gilead. And we know, of course, that that, was, uh, that happened and Ahab was slain there at Ramoth Gilead. But what I want you to notice is God was commissioning his angels to go out and to accomplish his will. In this case, taking out Ahab. Now there's a fascinating verse. Head with me, please, to uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 28. These are visions that God has given to men of God to depict the truth of God. And we have this vision. It's fascinating to me. This is referenced as Jacob's Ladder. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jacob's Ladder. A very interesting song, a beautiful song. I heard it sung one time uh, by, um, I can't, who was, who was, uh, never mind, I can't even remember him. I was, uh, never mind, let's go on. Um, no, I wasn't thinking of them. Let's go on a little further here. And Jacob now is entering the land of Israel. He's in the south of Israel, and he's headed north, but he's in the land of Israel. And as he's in the land of Israel, God is dealing with him. And notice what happens, please, in verse 11. And he came to a certain place and tarried there all night, because the sun was set, and he took stones for that place and put them for his pillows and laid down and that place to sleep. So he made himself an elevated type bed as he's laying there. Notice in verse 12, And he dreamed a dream, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and he beheld the angels of God ascending and descending on it. The song goes, We are climbing Jacob's ladder. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful song. But this is, that song's based upon this, this text, where Jacob sees God, and he sees heaven open, and he sees the angels of God coming and going. I would have loved to have seen that, wouldn't you? I'd just love to see that. God is commissioning his angels, and they're coming through the earth. Now, one thing I want you to realize is as the mountains are bronze and represent Jerusalem, the mountain ranges in Jerusalem, so uh, this depiction of angels coming and going in Israel pertains to God's Jewish people. As Americans, we like to think we are the center of the earth. The sun rises and falls on us. The truth is, we're mentioned nowhere in scriptures. The truth is, God is going to accomplish all his will and has accomplished all his will right there in Jerusalem. 
Has he used us? Yes. Did he use in England? Yes, he did. Has he used other countries of the world to accomplish his will? Yes, he did. But the center of God's will is focused right there in Jerusalem. If you, don't, if you have a hard time with that, when you read the book of the Revelation, you'll see the world will be cleaned off, and what will be left? The new Jerusalem. Right there, very same spot. Why? Because that's the center of God's will. That's the apple of his eye, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem. That's where he chose to place his name. And by the way, we'll see that uh, a great deal of that much later on. Turn with me to John chapter 1. This is also, to me, very fascinating. Angels, God uses angels in John chapter 1. God uses angels to accomplish his perfect will and to work his works. He disperses angels, sends them angels throughout the whole world. And we're in John chapter 1. Notice verse 51, please. This is, of course, where the Lord Jesus speaks with uh, Nathaniel. Uh, and, and Nathaniel is uh, really impressed by this situation. But what I want you to see is this little section of verse in John chapter 1 and verse 51. And he said unto him, Jesus is speaking, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You're going to witness this. Now, we do not have a record of that. That is, no apostle wrote about, I saw angels coming and going. We know that the apostles saw angels. They wrote about that. But we don't read anything about angels ascending and descending. But apparently, it all happened throughout the book of uh, the gospel accounts. Why? Because Jesus said... There's coming a day when you shall see heaven open and angels ascending and descending. So angels are accomplishing God's will. Back in the book of Zechariah now, these angels are going to accomplish his will, but this is in the totality of judgment. It's present and it will again be future. So let's look at this, please. These these, uh, angels... And, uh, and chariots, chariots of fire. Picking it up, if we could, please. Picking it up right in verse 5. And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of heaven, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. Now this, this vision really kind of parallels the first vision, doesn't it? When we think back on the first vision as we saw that. This vision parallels that a little bit. Only these are not just horses and horsemen. These are chariots, and their drivers are unnamed. Now let's, let's look at what God says about these chariots just for a moment. So keep your hand here. We're coming back. Head with me to the 68th Psalm. The 68th Psalm. Remember, you and I are kind of tied up in the New Testament church, and when we're thinking uh, God speaking, we're thinking about church age. We're thinking of the epistles. But you have to put that out of your mind because that's not, that's not what the reference here is. God is writing to the nation of Israel, to the Jews. Now remember specifically, all scripture is for us, but not all scripture is to us. All scripture is for us. We learn about who God is and his purposes, the Old Testament. But it's not necessarily written to us as New Testament Christians. We learn about God. We learn about his principles. We learn about his sovereignty. We learn about his creation power. We learn how he dealt with his people Israel. But it's not written to us. 
So when we're focusing on our Old Testament, these passages, we try to blend the church in there, and we don't belong in there. When this is fulfilled, we'll already have come and gone in the great translation of the saints. So this parenthesis is, is where we are. This is prior to and after we leave the scene. Now, we're looking at the 68th Psalm for a moment. Look at the 17th passage, please. The 17th passage. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them in Sinai in the holy place. Notice God's chariots. This is not men's chariots. Remember, God told the kings, don't trust in chariots, don't trust in horses. And one of, don't multiply chariots. And it's interesting, when you go to Megiddo, where we know it's going to be the great battle of Armageddon, but in Megiddo, there's a tell there, a very large tell, in Megiddo, where Solomon stored over, I can't remember the exact number, but 10,000 chariots right there in Megiddo. It was a crossroads of the north, and where uh, the Syrians could come in, uh, the Assyrians at that day, and the Babylonians and, and Solomon had uh, giant chariots and uh, horsemen up there. And even to this day, when you go there, you can see these troughs where the horses would eat and drink, and there's holes cut in them so they could tie the horses to them. There were barns there, grain for the animals. Solomon uh, actually added lots of chariots, and that was part of his downfall, wasn't it? As he added women, he added chariots, he added wealth, and that was his downfall before the Lord. But these chariots belong to God. These are God's chariots. This is God's work. These are not men. One more place. Head with me to this Isaiah chapter 66, please. Isaiah 66. So the vision that is coming to Zechariah is these four chariots, the four spirits of God going throughout the earth. Now we're in Isaiah chapter 66. Look with me, please, at verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord shall come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Chariots, God's chariots, represent his strength, but it also represents his total judgment. Now that has to do with God protecting the nation of Israel after, after the Babylonian captivity. God is going to protect the nation. He has chariots. Essentially what God is saying to Zechariah, you tell the people, don't worry about it. I'm in control, I'm sovereign, and I'm going to do my will. But now we want to see the future of these things. And remember what kind of horses. There was a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, and a spotted horse or a pale horse. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6, please. Revelation chapter 6. Again, I'm just reminding you, we, we, we're not mentioned in the Old Testament as a church. We are mentioned in the New Testament. And then when you get to the book of the Revelation, after chapter 3, we leave the scene. There's no more church mentioned. And God picks it up again with the nation of Israel and continues on. So we now have come, we're on the scene, now we leave the scene, and God continues this vision of Zechariah. And we see that in Revelation chapter 
6, look at verse 1, please. And I saw the Lamb. To know who the Lamb is, you have to see it's Christ, and we see that in all of chapter 5, 1 through 5, really. But in chapter 6 and verse 1, And I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the living creatures said, Come. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now this really is a, a judgment given to an individual. This probably is the Antichrist. But what I want you to see is he's riding this white horse. He's a false Christ. Now how do we know that? Well, because he has an earthly crown, a Stephanos, an earthly crown. Christ wears a diadem, a kingly crown. This man has an earthly crown that men have given to him. Not only that, this man has a, 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 a bow, notice, a, a bow, an arrow, like a, a bow that you'd shoot an arrow out of. He has a bow, and Christ is known for his sword. So this is a, what you would have is an imitation of Christ, a false representative, but God is sending him. And what is he on? He's on a white horse. And notice what is given to him. A, a bow and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This false Christ is involved in conquering nations. Now, we do not know who this guy is from this, from this particular passage, but as we look at Daniel, and further on in the book of the Revelation, we see that this is none other than Antichrist himself. He is that wicked one that should come, the son of perdition, the son of ruinous, He's that one that should come. And remember, there will be, in fact, war when he's upon the face of the earth. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences. There's going to be all kinds of things going on. And then Antichrist comes, and he's the one that's going to fix the whole world. He has this ability, and people will follow him, and they will, they will fall in line with him, and they will obey him, and eventually they will worship him. So there's a white horse here. Now again, pick it up in verse 3 of Revelation 6. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given unto him that sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. Uh, and there was given unto him a great sword. So this, this destruction begins the process of the earth where all these wars are taking place. And when you read through the book of the Revelation, it becomes very, very clear that the entire world is now locked in battle. 200 million men come from the east. Uh, the, the nations, the Islamic nations to the north of Israel, along with Russia itself, tries to invade the nation of Israel. So God says all these wars will be taking place, and this comes from this red horse, which coincides, by the way, with the red horse's of the book of Zechariah. Now, of course, we have a black horse, picking it up, if you would please, in verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I beheld a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A measure of wheat for a denarius, and three measures of barley for a denarius, and see that thou hurt not the oil or the wine. So this 
uh, indicates a famine in the land. Why, why do we say that? Well, because a denarius is a, wage, a day's wage, and that's for a loaf of bread, a small piece of bread. A day's wage for a piece of bread. It's like going to Whole Foods almost, you know. Uh, very, very expensive. Why? Because there's a famine in the entire land. And, and, and uh, people, that's the best they can do is buy some bread for their children in the great uh, tri- tribulation period. And notice, uh, God is bringing this pestilence, if you would, on the land. Now, why is that? Well, because of the wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and pestilence. War devastates places. War devastates places, just wipes them out. That's why we have to invest so much money in, in uh, Iran and Iraq. Uh, I mean, Iraq particularly. Why? Because of all of the damage we did. Remember um, the uh, head of the um, Colin Powell, the head of the Joint Chiefs, said, if you go in there and you bomb that place, you, you're going to have to fix it. And so what did we do? We took out all their infrastructure. Now we pour billions in there trying to fix it again. They should have just had, never mind. Let's go on here. Okay. Pick it up at verse 7, if you would. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth creature saying, Come, and behold, a pale horse. Now I believe that coincides with the dappled horse because of the Hebrew language. It's difficult to understand, but this pale horse, or perhaps this spotted horse, whatever he was, gray in nature, notice, and, uh, and I beheld a pale horse, and his name that was on him is Death and Hades, and Death and Hades followed him, and power was given to him over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. So these, now comes this famine, hunger, uh, pestilence upon the earth. People will be dying, starving to death, and the beasts of the earth will rebel. Uh, the, the very dogs and animals that were friendly toward men will now turn against men because they're starving to death. They'll go back to their animal nature. When we were, uh, when we were married just a few years, and Amy came along, and uh, we had a dog, and his name was Gizmo. He was a big German shepherd dog. I got him because I was working second shift and I wanted a dog there. And he was, he was like, he was mean. He loved us, but he didn't like other people. And I had bought Amy a rabbit. And, and Gizmo was playing with the rabbit. He just loved this rabbit, we thought. Trouble is, one day Gizmo got hungry. And I went in the garage and Gizmo had consumed everything but the fur on the rabbit. Why? Because that's what animals do. They're animals. That's their nature. And an animal that's starving to death is going to eat anything. Absolutely anything. And that's what will happen during these great pestilences. So God says that this this last horse represents the horror of a total judgment upon a world that's turned against God. And so the, the horses of Revelation coincide almost exactly with the horses of the book of Zechariah. So again, we have the present in Zechariah's day and then the future when Messiah's going to come. Messiah's going to come right at the end of all that and he's going to set up his glorious kingdom on earth. Why? Because only he's the, the prince of peace. He's the one that's going to do all the work. 
Now, when judgment comes, it would be horrible, horrible. Now, why is it? Why would God do this to people? Why would God bring his judgment? Isn't he unfair? Isn't he unjust? Let me remind you of something. And it's in the end of the book of, uh, uh, it's the end of chapter 6 of the Revelation. Notice, please. Verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. So an earthquake that shakes the very roots of our, of, our, uh, of our planet. And what happens is this now allows earthquakes to spew. And as those earthquakes spew out all of their, their, uh, their uh, molten lava and, and clouds of, of rock and, and uh, all kinds of silt into the air, they actually blacken the sun. Uh, we've, we've, we've had that happen, haven't we? I remember seeing pictures of Mount St. Helens so many years ago and what that did. Even in Iceland, there's been some, uh, some, earth, some um, volcanoes that have gone off and they've stopped flight over that because of the, the, the darkness and blackness of all of this uh, sediment in the air. And this happens, and notice what goes on, please. And the stars of heaven fell to earth as even as a fig casts off her untimely figs. God bombards the earth with all these uh, meteorites coming in. And notice um, verse 14. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it's rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So the earthquake is a horrendous earthquake. Now you would think at this particular point that people say, oh God, save us. Oh God, help us. Oh God, we believe you and we repent. What happens? Verse 15. And the kings of the earth and great men and rich men and chief captains and mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the land. For who is, uh, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall stand, be able to stand. Instead of repenting, they run. The frightening thing. That's the heart of man. Not to turn toward God, but to turn away from God. And often we think, well, if only this would happen in someone's life, they would turn toward God. Nothing will turn them toward God but conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That's the only thing. Only the word of God will turn men to God. That's it. No calamity in their life will do that. Say, well, I remember when this happened to us and this happened to us. And part of my testimony is when Nancy's brother died at age 12 of cancer, uh, we were sensitive. But what did we do? We started going back to our roots, to our Catholic church, and going through all the motions and became friends with some of the priests and all this business. When her brother was dying, we needed answers. And it was only when someone gave us the word of God that the answers stimulated our heart and we believed. That's it. It wasn't that the event happened. It was that God's word, God used the event, but God's word is what opened our soul to believe. Okay, so let's head back, if we could, to the book of Zechariah again. Right back to Zechariah chapter 6. So these, these chariots with these horses are, are present-day situations in Zechariah's day, but they also represent a future uh, generation. 
And they go out throughout all the earth. You'll notice that as you read in all of chapter 6. And now something else happens. This is, that's the end of the eight visions there. But following these eight visions, God gives Zechariah another picture. It's not a vision necessarily, but a picture. Notice what we pick up in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came unto me saying, Take them of the captivity of Hildiah and Tobijah and of Jediah who came from Babylon and come the same day and go into the house of Josiah uh, of Zephaniah. Now, all this simply is, I want you to take the representatives of the tribes who have come from Babylon. These, are, uh, these would be the heads of tribes that came from Babylon. And what I want you to do is have these men make a crown, a crown of glory, and I want you to go and bring it and place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now this is interesting because this is not necessarily an actual event, but a vision that's going on, or a, a picture that's going on, and I'll show you how that plays together, but a picture that goes on where Joshua, the high priest, is going to be crowned. I might say, well, what's that all about? How, how come Joshua is going to be crowned when really uh, the high priest and the king were two different people? Well, again, I might mention to you, that's the present condition, but God is showing his future work. Pick it up, please, in, if you could, in verse 12. And speak unto him. This is unto um, Joshua, the high priest, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Wait a minute. Who's supposed to build the temple? It's Zerubbabel. Joshua has a part in it, but his part is a priest in the temple. He's not necessarily building the temple. It's Zerubbabel's temple, the governor. He's responsible for it. And what I want you to notice is God is saying, there's going to come a priest who will build the temple. And who is that priest? It's the branch. And there's so many uh, passages within the scriptures pointing out the branch being the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know all of them, but I want to... Uh, just look at a couple, if we could, together. Looking at this person, the branch. God, God is going to bring that branch who is the only king priest. He's the only king priest. Other people have tried to uh, be part of that being a king priest. And God has actually judged, it, particularly one of them, and uh, you know, of course, a Saul. Uh, tried to sacrifice. Remember, uh, he went into battle against the Philistines. And Samuel was late in coming. And I won't have you turn to it, but you can see it in 1 Samuel 13. Samuel is late in coming. And he doesn't arrive in time because uh, Saul starts seeing men leaving. The, the tribes of Israel, they're leaving. They begin to become frightened and they start leaving. And Saul thinks, well, we need God's blessing, so he... Saul offers a sacrifice. Guess who shows up? The second the thing's burning. Samuel. And Samuel said, because you have done this, I'm going to strip the kingdom from you. 
Why? Because he entered into the priesthood. And he had no business doing that. He was the king of Israel. Remember David, uh, and, and again we won't turn to it, but Matthew chapter 12, David went in and tried to take the showbread, the showbread, and, and the, the priest withstood him. It's very interesting. Why? Because the king and the priest were two separate offices. Now, when you have the only one who is the king priest, and that is Messiah himself, he is the branch. So let's look at a couple of uh, passages, please, concerning the branch. Look at, uh, look at chapter 3, Zechariah 3 and verse 8. Hear now, Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows who sit before thee, for they are men that wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. We looked at that when we were together. Who's my servant? He is the branch. Talking about our Lord Jesus. And you can see that from Isaiah chapter 11. So head with me to Isaiah chapter 11. My servant, the branch, shall come. Isaiah chapter 11. Let's start right in verse 1, please. This is the Davidic kingdom, the millennial kingdom that's going to come. In verse, chapter 11 and verse 1. And there shall come forth out of Jesse. I'm sorry, there shall come forth a rod out of Jesse. And the branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now when you read the context, you're going to see that's the promised Messiah to come. He's called a rod out of Jesse, out of Jesse, of course, David's father, and then out of David, a rod out of Jesse. And what will happen? And he's referred to as the branch. And he will judge in the earth. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Next book, Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. Again, the reference here is the branch. In Jeremiah chapter 23, look at verses 5 and 6 with me, please. 5 and 6. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. And in his days shall the church be saved. Is that what it says? It's true. And that, that's truth. That will happen. But not here. This is God speaking about his chosen people, Israel. Later on, later on, as, as progressive revelation comes forth, Messiah does come. Messiah comes unto his own. His own receives him not. And now, then he turns to the nations, the Gentiles. But right here, the, the focal point is Judah, or Jerusalem. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and his name whereby shall be called the Lord our righteousness, the righteous branch. Again, the reference here is to Messiah. We only have a couple minutes left, so just hang on. 33, please, chapter 14. Chapter 30, I'm sorry, chapter 33 and verse 14. Jeremiah 33, and look at verse 14. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform a good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and unto the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, 
and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and his name will be, uh, shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord, again, the branch, the perfect branch shall come. And it's interesting, in the book of Ezekiel, we, I mean, I'm sorry, the book of Zechariah, we are going to see that that branch does come. And what will happen to the nation of Israel when he does come? Not in their time, but prophetically speaking, when he shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, meaning the Messiah, the Messiah himself. So, it's a picture, if you would, about a king priest coming on the scene. Now, when did the king priest come on the scene? Well, head back with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. We have a picture. Now, again, this, this is a little bit... This is speculation, okay? Uh, I don't want to be dogmatic about this, even though I believe firmly what I'm telling you right now. But it's hard to be dogmatic. In Genesis chapter 14... We have a very unique person coming on the scene, and he is Melchizedek. Melchizedek. He is, in fact, a king priest. A king priest. In uh, Genesis chapter 14, notice please in verse uh, 18, you recall the story where um, Abram uh, has uh, conquered nations. His son, his nephew Lot was conquered by seven nations. Abraham took his men and he conquered those nations. And when he conquered them, he had all their goods. He had everything that they owned. When a king went to war, he carried everything he owned. It's like Nancy and I. When we leave someplace, she brings her pocketbook. Why? That's all we have in the world is her pocketbook. Uh, what's in there? We own that, so we bring it with us. Why? We don't want to leave stuff at home in case someone was to break in and steal our stuff. Well, that's what a king would do, bring all his goods with him. Why? Because he's bringing his army somewhere, and if he leaves his stuff at home, someone's going to invade back there. Okay, now picking it up, Abraham inherits all this stuff. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Notice he's a king priest. He's the king of Salem. We know that to be Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem. And he's a, a priest of the Most High God, the only king priest mentioned in the scriptures. And he blessed him and said, this is the king priest, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God who has delivered thine enemies unto thy hands. And Abraham gave him tithes of all. So Abraham gave tithes to the king priest. Now, it's not until we get into the New Testament that this secret is unveiled to us. I believe Genesis chapter 14 is referencing the pre-incarnate Christ who met with Abraham right there on the battlefield. When we get to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, we see our Lord Jesus Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he's a king priest. He's the only king priest. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. So when Zechariah now sees this vision, or this, these people are coming, they're ordered to come and crown Joshua, 
What are they doing? They're depicting not Joshua himself, but the branch. The branch that was to come. And that was the order given to Zechariah. Tell them about the branch coming. And he will be that king priest. And we see that in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 5. And we'll close with this, and you can keep your sleep at home. Okay, in chapter 5, look at verse 5, please. So Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but, uh, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So Christ did not come and, and glorify himself, but it was the Father who glorified him and gave him that honor of the king priest. Verse 6, And he said in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord Jesus Christ was the high priest, verse 10, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So I believe our Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament king priest, and I believe he was a pre-incarnate Christ there with Abraham, and now he's given that title as the king priest. And Joshua is just representing that, if you would, in Zechariah's vision. So again, we, we skip from the immediate in Zechariah to the future. From the immediate to the future. Skipping the church age. Why? Because the church age is yet to come. And the church age will be off the scene when Messiah returns to earth to set up his millennial kingdom. Now he will return and we will meet him in the clouds of the air. And that's where we'll be taken to heaven with him and receive reward or loss of reward and will be arrayed in righteous robes. But when he returns to the earth, we come with him because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we've gone through a lot of material here. It's, it's not easy to, to, for in our thinking as New Testament scriptures, to, as New Testament Christians rather, to just skip over. But yet, Lord, you've, you've, you've given us your beautiful pattern and plan. You've given us the prophecy of your men of God who spoke of the great Messiah to come. So, Father, all Scripture is for us because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. By these Old Testament Scriptures, we learn of you. We learn of your, your purpose, God. We thank you for it. We see your majesty and your glory. We recognize, Father, that it's all from you. It's all about you. It all has to do with your glory. So, Father, we thank you for such a vision as was given to Zechariah that he might see and and prophesy a 4,000-year period of time and even longer if you should tarry until you come. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.